Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. My podcast is brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors. It's winter. It's cold. That's where you need your windows to step their game up and keep your energy efficiency on point where you're staying warm, keeping the heat high and the energy bills low. And your windows are vital in this fight. Pella's got the top of the line windows to do just that. You can holler at them your local Pella Omaha and Lincoln experts, or you can go online, PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. And the Nick Bob podcast is powered by Runza. And one of the great things about it being winter is the tradition unlike any other, and that is Temperature Tuesdays. It is back. It's that time of the year. Every single Tuesday in January and February, the 6 a.m. temperature at the coldest Runza location is the price you'll pay for an original Runza sandwich when you buy a medium fry and medium drink. Oh, baby. Temperature Tuesdays are back. Take advantage of it. Runza makes it all better. All right. Welcome back into the podcast. I am taping this. It is January 30th. It is 11.37 p.m. So it is almost midnight. Uh, kids are asleep. I don't know why I'm still awake. Actually, I do because I got to get this podcast out to the people. So let's do it, man. I got a Creighton take uh, with hoops. And then I wanted to finally, I've been sitting on a whole bunch of mailbag questions. I wanted to empty out, go through my email inbox. Uh, Literally just went through my email inbox. Had a couple of even stuff on the NFL games here this evening. With, uh, with with Joe Burrow and Patrick Mahomes and all the craziness there. So we got a bunch of, bunch of mailbag questions I'm going to go through, but I want to start with Creighton because uh, the Blue Jays lost to Xavier uh, just yesterday. Uh, this past Saturday at the CHI Health Center is the Pink Out, always a great event. Uh, is a game that I was on the call on, on on FS1. And, man, I don't know if I've ever seen anything quite like that. You know, I've I've watched a million basketball games, called a million basketball games. That was that w- that game was a unique one where Creighton was in total control over the twenty first ranked Xavier Musketeers, who are, they're deep, their roster is fantastic, their experience. Creighton's up seventeen at half over Xavier, and the game completely flipped and completely flipped in a hurry. Xavier proceeded to go on a twenty nine to two run. 29 to 2. And Creighton didn't make a field goal for the first 11 minutes of the second half. Didn't make a shot for the first 11 minutes. Creighton goes from up 17 at halftime to losing the game by 10. It's just, I mean, it was quite the collapse. And there's certainly a lot to unpack with this game and kind of where Creighton's at as it as it tries to dust themselves off after that one, and and move on. I thought Coach McDermott put it best after the game uh, to the media, and I'm paraphrasing here. He basically was like, listen, man, that game summarizes our team. In the first half, you saw our ceiling, but unfortunately in the second half, you saw our floor. And I, I think that's a pretty accurate way to put it. It's a pretty accurate way of putting it. I've been saying all year, the spectrum of what Creighton is capable of is really wide. When Creighton's good, they're good enough to beat Villanova by 20, smack BYU by 20, beat Marquette on the road. Like, But when Creighton is bad, they can really th- – things go south quickly. They can really struggle. Really struggle. And, you know, the – the reality of good teams is that gap between their floor and their ceiling is fairly low or fa- fairly slim, I should say. Like they always have a high floor. Like good teams, even when they're bad, they're still pretty good. When Creighton's bad, they are they really can struggle. And one of the things that that is becoming clear to me is Creighton's reliance on Ryan Kalkbrenner. And let me let me explain that. 
you know, doing what I do for Fox, and I, you know, I, I get all these games and these assignments, and I got to study these teams. You know, you study their roster, you go over their numbers, and then I like to watch at least three games, but sometimes I like I, I'll watch as many as I can, right? And every team, in particular, every good team, they ha- they're always going to have one thing that you got to respect and you got to figure out and you got to be ready to deal with. Some teams have multiple things, but most most teams have kind of that that one thing above all else. Like, man, you got to deal with this. You got to deal with this zone. You got to deal with this full court pressure. You got to deal with this three point shooting. You got to deal like most good teams have that that number one thing that you got to be respect. You got to respect. You got to be ready to deal with. For years, for Creighton, it was boy, you got to be ready to defend the three point line, and you got to be ready to deal with their pace and their their up tempo style. This Creighton team is different. To me, when I watch Creighton and I study them on film and 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 I you know examine them. To me, the number one thing you got to be ready to deal with if you play Creighton is Ryan Kalkbrenner's rim protection. That's the number one pressing issue on your plate to me. That Kalkbrenner's rim protection is the thing for Creighton's team right now. And listen, I'm not just – that's not just what I think. That's even – Travis Steele said as much. Uh, talking to him before the game, the Xavier head coach, he said, man, we got to figure out Kalkbender. We got to – we got to – we have to figure out how to solve that riddle of moving him out of the lane. We got to – we got to figure out how we're going to score over the top of it. And Creighton's numbers kind of bear that out. Creighton's field goal percentage defense has been really good throughout the year. It's two-point field goal percentage defense been really good throughout the year. And Kalkbrenner's shot blocking is a lot with that in, in what those numbers look like. Kalkbrenner, as of today, is he's 12th in the country in block shots, a little over three a game. And, and think about this. Of the top 100 shot blockers in the country, nobody has fewer fouls than Ryan Kalkbrenner. Think about that. So dude is blocking shots, contesting shots, altering shots, and doing it without fouling. That's big time. That was Xavier's number one thing they had to solve. And they solved it in the second half. When Jack Nungy at the five started hitting threes, he finished four for six from three. When Nungy hit threes to start the second half, the game completely changed. When Creighton can't just plant Kalkbrenner in the lane and just keep him in the lane, keep him in front of the rim, everything's different for the Blue Jays because their defense erodes in a hurry. Even, so think about the last two games. So we're talking about that Xavier game, but even think about the Butler game. That game got blown open when Butler was able to hit five straight threes in the second half, and two of them were from Bryce Golden, who was at the five. Who was defending Bryce Golden? Kalkbrenner. So to me, that's the thing. For years now, Creighton has been one of those teams where if teams defended the three-point line, kept them in the half court, kept them out of transition, Creighton was vulnerable to get beat, right? I think this year, this Creighton team, you're seeing a little bit of a trend in that if teams can pull Kalkbrenner out of the lane and he doesn't have his impact and fingerprints on defending the rim, blocking shots, altering shots, Creighton's a little vulnerable. And listen, not every team's equipped with a Jack Nungy or or a, a, a stretch five that can spread the floor and shoot threes. So you you better have that, or you better have some sort of plan to get Kalkbrenner out of the lane. And once Xavier did that, it changed everything. It's just it is it's amazing how different this Creighton team is. I mean, think about this: heading into the game on Saturday against Xavier. Creighton was last in the Big East in three-point field goals made, 
last in the Big East in three-point percentage, and they were last in turnovers per game, so most turnovers per game, which is not good. But Creighton was number one in field goal percentage offense and number two in field goal percentage defense. So what that means is Creighton is winning the paint more often than not. It's just been, it's wild how for years from Doug and Raggy and the boys to Mo Watson, Marcus Foster and the boys and and then Zegarowski and Tyshawn and Mitch and the boys, like for years, Creighton's weaknesses have been rebounding, defending the rim. And those things are now strengths with this team. And Creighton's strengths used to be three-point shooting, pace, ball handling. And now those things are kind of weaknesses. So it's just it's a really interesting team. I think Coach McDermott, I've told anybody who's asked, I think Coach McDermott's doing a great job with this team. I really do. Because I think this team, I've told this team's got got shortcomings. Their margin for error is really slim. They're young. I thought Creighton would have more nights like the one at Butler or at Nova or even second halves, not quite as pronounced, but similar to the Xavier game at home. But to but to Greg McDermott's credit, they haven't. They haven't had as many of those. He's pressed the right buttons and has this team squarely on the bubble as the calendar is going to turn into February. But it's about to get really stressful because this is now a very difficult and crucial stretch for Creighton. Creighton has lost two in a row, lost to Butler on the road and now Xavier at home. And they're now staring down the barrel of potentially losing four in a row with really tough road games this week at UConn and at Seton Hall. This next week is huge to try to steal one of those games. Creighton really would it really would behoove them to go try and steal one of those games because after this tough week, I don't. You look at the schedule and it gets it. It's not as daunting. After after so you have road games at UConn and at Seton Hall, and then here's Creighton's schedule. They get Butler at home, then they're at Georgetown. Then they have Georgetown at home, back-to-back because of rescheduled games. And then they have DePaul at home. Like, Butler, Georgetown, DePaul, those are three of the bottom teams in the league right now. So this week is huge because what's coming around the corner is, is manageable. Certainly not easy, but manageable. Two quality wins potentially on tap for for Creighton with UConn and Seton Hall. And then some confidence-boosting games potentially coming down the pike. But here's the thing. I say all that, and the reality is this team could go win at UConn and then also get swept by Georgetown, who's yet to win a game in the Big East. Like, that, that is in the cards with this group. Like, if you were to tell me, like, if we got Biff's Almanac from Back to the Future 2 – and I looked and I saw Creighton won at UConn by eight and then lost back-to-back games to Georgetown. I'd be like, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. I, so we'll see. I like that Ryan Nemhard played better against Xavier. I was worried that he was really wearing down. He's fourth in the, in the Big East in minutes played. And he plays hard minutes, having to push the ball, handle the ball. It looked like he was losing some of his pop. I thought he had some of his pop back against Xavier, which is good to see him play well because they, they need him to take care of the ball and run the show. But that's just it. Creighton, if Creighton can take care of the ball, which turnovers have been a big issue, again, average the most turnovers per game in in the Big East. If they can take care of the ball and then keep Kalkbrenner kind of planted in the lane on defense and allow him to do what he does best, which is alter and block shots and be just a menace for teams at the rim, if those two things can happen, Creighton's going to be right there, staying bubblicious for the for the big dance. I really think they are. They're going to be right in that you know eight nine ten line if they can do those two things and and because if they do those two things, they're going to be right there to win a lot of these games. 
But a big a big week on deck though with with UConn and Seton Hall because it's hard. You know, there there's a momentum is real, confidence is real. You want to keep on, you know, trending in the right direction. It's hard to lose four in a row, and it's just going to be. It could be challenging now with those two road games coming up, UConn and Seton Hall. So we'll see. But man, wild wild game in Omaha with with Creighton and Xavier. All right, let's empty some of these mailbag questions out. Some of these are from like a few weeks ago, and, and some of these are from literally today. Uh, but l- let's let's start with the topical ones, the ones from today. The Nick Bob Podcast is powered by Runza and the cold winter months. It's officially here. And as a warm weather lover myself, the cold can kind of bum me out. But the one thing that always puts a huge smile on my face when it gets cold, temperature Tuesdays at Runza. Yes, it's that time of the year. Temperature Tuesdays are back at Runza, where every Tuesday in January and February, the 6 a.m. temperature at the coldest Runza location is the price you'll pay for an original Runza sandwich when you buy a medium fry and medium drink. Think about it. An original Runza sandwich might be 10 cents, a dime, might be a nickel, might be a quarter. Heck, might even be one penny. Just one penny. So make sure you take advantage of this incredible deal every single Tuesday at Runza where the temp at 6 a.m. in Runza land is the price you pay for an original Runza sandwich and you buy a medium fry and a medium drink. It's back, baby. Temperature Tuesdays. Runza makes it all better. Dan emails says, Nick, now that Joe Burrow is in the Super Bowl, how many times are we going to hear about Joe Burrow wanted to go to Nebraska, but Nebraska turned him down? Well, Dan... Probably going to hear that a few times now, right? Because we've got two weeks now leading up to the Super Bowl, so every single storyline for every prominent player gets, you know, that going to get told. It is still remarkable to think about, though. I, I, it's funny. I talked about this a few weeks ago on my podcast after the Bengals clinched their their division and birth to the playoffs, where I. I thought about as time is keeps on passing here is Joe Burrow the ultimate Husker what if missed recruit well now that Burrow has made it to the Super Bowl I don't even think it's a question he definitely is the ultimate what if missed Husker recruit I love me some Danny Woodhead but Burrow is is now to me officially supplanted him as and is on top of that Miss Nebraska recruit mountain. I mean, this is a guy, he's won a Heisman Trophy. He won a national title and potentially about to win a Super Bowl. And he wanted to go to Nebraska and Nebraska said, no, thanks. Turned him down. I mean, really let that sink in for a second. When you sit down for your Super Bowl party or sit down to watch the Super Bowl in your house, Joe Burrow's going to be out there quarterbacking. He wanted to come to Nebraska. It's an incredible story. As much as Husker fans are maybe tired of it, I still think it's fascinating to talk about. And I get it, man. Some people are listening. They're like, oh, Bob, you seriously going to rehash this for the 500th time? No, I'm not going to rehash this for the 500th time. But it, but now the dude is in the Super Bowl. It's it, it adds another chapter to that, like, what if book for him and Nebraska. It's like, oh my god, Andy's going to win. Andy won a Heisman. Andy, Andy won the national title. Andy got the Bengals to the playoffs, and he beat Patrick Mahomes in the Kansas City Chiefs at Arrowhead Stadium. And now he's in the Super Bowl. Like it's just and and and. But there, as as this story unfolded today, to me there are a few things that are interesting to think about within the Burrow story. First of all, the the fact that Urban Meyer chose Dwayne Haskins over Joe Burrow. Like I feel like that. And listen, Dwayne Haskins was good. He's good, really good quarterback. Won a lot of games, big time passers, first round pick, but he ain't Joe Burrow. And it's funny how people, all, all the angst gets thrown towards Frost and like, oh God, what an idiot. But like Burrow was in Ohio State's program. They had Joe Burrow in the program. And they chose JT Barrett and Dwayne Haskins over him. And listen, JT Barrett was a good player. Dwayne Haskins was a good player. But both those guys ain't Joe Burrow. So I think that's just kind of interesting to, to think about. In the if, if I'm Frost, I'm like, listen, man. Look, I mean, Ohio State had him in his program. 
Had him in his, uh, come on. But within that, the it's just the because it's gotten thrown out a whole bunch. The the quote from Frost in April of 2018 with regards to Burrow wanting to transfer Nebraska but wanting to stay with Martinez and what he had, the infamous quote of, quote, you think he's better than what we got? Talking about Burrow comparing to Martinez and his quarterback situation. That's always the money quote that kind of gets shoved in the face of Frost and Nebraska and, and all that. But I don't know if you really unpack that quote, like, I think a lot of coaches would have taken Martinez over Burrow in 2018. Think about it. Joe Burrow, when he transferred to Ohio State, had 39 career pass attempts and was a career backup at the time. Adrian Martinez was a four-star recruit who was going to be a true freshman who was going to have four years of eligibility. I think a lot of coaches would have been like, option one, Martinez, option two, Burrow. I think a lot of coaches would be like, I'll take Martinez. And then what's even more amazing to think about is nobody thought Joe Burrow was better than Adrian Martinez after the 2018 season. After Martinez's freshman year at Nebraska and Joe Burrow's first year at LSU, Martinez was the Heisman candidate, not Joe Burrow. Burrow didn't didn't light the world on fire his first year at LSU. He was good, but he didn't light the world on fire. I think most people thought Martinez was the was the better player, was the better quarterback. And then we all know what happened. Burrow has the meteoric rise, the incredible season. He wins the Heisman. He wins the national title. And now look at him with the Bengals. But it's just to me, it's interesting to think back on that decision. Of course, in hindsight, it's unforgivable from Frost in Nebraska, right? If it's it's the biggest Husker missed what if recruit in program history. But w- but what's real is Frost wasn't the only coach who thought Martinez was the right choice heading into 2018 and even 2019. But unfortunate, but you know, unfortunately, we all know how everything's unfolded. By the way, I find Joe Burrow so freaking likable, man. It, he is so much fun to watch. Whatever, whatever, like that it thing that all great ones have, he has it. He's got that competitive confidence and swagger to him that is incredible to watch. Likeable, easy to root for, and I will be rooting like hell for him in the Super Bowl, even though it will just add more salt to the Husker missed recruit what-if wound for Husker Nation. Kevin emails in. There's another one from today. He says, Nick, I miss hearing your random thoughts on things other than Creighton and Nebraska and sports. I'm a Kansas City Chiefs fan, and I'm devastated with the loss to the Bengals today. What do you think of how Patrick Mahomes, what do you think of how Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs lost to the Bengals? Well, listen, I don't I can't get into it. I Kevin, your email just got me to thinking about this. And you may not love this take because you're a Chiefs fan. Kevin, just warning. No, maybe not. I'm just simply pointing this out. With Patrick Mahomes. So, and I can't remember if I said this on the pod a year ago or not, but I got really worn out last year heading into the Super Bowl, Bucks Chiefs, without with with people making statements like if Mahomes wins, is he in the GOAT conversation? If Patrick Mahomes, if if they beat the box, is he officially in the GOAT conversation? I just, I remember hearing that and being like, Jesus, guys, what? Slow down. Of course, we all know what happened. The Bucs won. Can't see Chiefs lost. And it's just interesting because here we are one year later. And the Chiefs lose again. And didn't even make the Super Bowl. And I said this on on the Shikinik pod, and I'll say it here. It, it's it's interesting for me to, con- to contrast. Like, remember when Aaron Rodgers 
had one of the all-time playoff runs and won the Super Bowl in 2011. Remember how good he was in in those playoffs at, against the Falcons? He was incredible. I, in fact, I'm not sure I've seen a better stretch of quarterbacking yet in terms of playoff court. He was amazing. And after that playoff run, and... Rodgers wins the Super Bowl, Super Bowl MVP. He would have been in his late 20s at the time. So, young quarterback. Everyone thought, here we go. How many more rings is Rodgers going to win? Could we have a guy on the GOAT path that look out? Here we go. It's Aaron Rodgers' time. Well, here we are 11 years later, and Rodgers has won exactly zero more Super Bowls. I bring that up to, first of all, point out that, hey, winning it all is crazy hard. Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes, arguably the two most talented quarterbacks you'll ever watch play. But supreme crazy talent doesn't guarantee anything. And I I bring up the Rodgers run in 2011 for his Super Bowl, just to to kind of point out, we've been down this road before. Young quarterback, incredible talent, wins one, look out. Rodgers had his 1-1 since. Mahomes lost last year to the Bucs, now lost to Burrow in the Bengals. Like, I don't know. It's weird. I, I don't even know what I'm trying to say. This isn't an anti-Rogers or anti-Mahomes take. I just think we we forget how freaking hard it is to win it all. And because of that, we anoint really fast. And that's all. Maybe we anointed Mahomes a little quickly. And it's hard for me to even say that because I know when I watch, it's like you you know he takes your breath away. But I feel the same way about Aaron Rodgers. Dude's got one ring. One ring. Nico uh, via email says, uh, Nick, how many wins does Scott Frost need next year to keep his job? Okay, like, I want to say seven. I want to say minimum seven. But I honestly think he can go six and six and keep his job. I know that may not sit well with some people oh god six and six how far is the the we are letting the standard slip I I think he can go six and six and keep his job again the hard part about all this and I mean I just feel like I've said this a million times on the pod but the hard part about all this is what it looks like if you'd have told me a year ago the frost was going to go three and nine I'd have gone oh my god he's fired but he's not because we all know what the three and nine looked like so I I think the number's probably seven, but I really do think he can go six and six and keep his job, assuming it looks how it looks good and it looks decent. And again, the the interesting thing too is like on top of getting inside whatever number you want to put on it for a, a a win lost for Frost to be retained is like, in some ways, is like did Frost do was did Frost do an a, an amazing enough job with Mickey Joseph and Mark Whipple and filling out the staff, special teams coach, finding two talented quarterbacks to bring in at the transfer portal is all that impressive enough to now make this a two year conversation instead of just a one year conversation. I know it's hard for you to say that. So I'm like holding back laughing as I'm saying it, but like, and I, I realize like, there's always going to be something. There's always going to be a reason to be like, ah, oh, it needs to be one more year. Ah, oh, it needs to be one more year. But the problem is now you kind of, you kind of find yourself like, well, now I want to see what like Mickey Joseph can do recruiting 
for more than just one recruiting cycle. And I want to see what Donovan Raiola can do really developing that offensive line. I want to see what Mark Whipple can really do once he gets all of his pieces in place to be able to do what he wants to do offensively. And I want to see what Frost looks like in the CEO role. And I want to see what the team looks like with Bill Bush as a full-time special teams coach and what that unit now looks like. Like, you can talk yourself, now I want to see what happens with Casey Thompson and Chubba Purdy for multiple years in this system. Like, you can talk yourself into a lot of that stuff. And as as much as you want to roll your eyes at it, some of it's kind of like, yeah, I got it. that's that's kind of valid. But to answer Nico your question, I my the number I want to say right off top is seven. Got to get seven to keep his job. But honestly, I think he goes six and six and keep, six and six and keep, and keep his job. With the with the great variable and caveat is what does it look like? That's why you got to watch the games, baby. Brett emails in, says, Nick, give me the five best teams you've seen in person this year calling college basketball games. Okay, so the way Brett phrased the question is the best the best teams I've seen in person. So this isn't like I've not seen Baylor in person or Gonzaga in person or UCLA in person. So the, I'm, I'll go off. Here are the five best teams I've seen. I've been courtside. I've seen them. With my own two eyes, they've been right. I can feel their speed, their power, their size, their chemistry, all that stuff. The five best teams I've seen this year are Purdue. I've seen them twice now against Nebraska and against Iowa. Fucking good. Those two bigs, legit. I'm not sure there's a team that runs offense with more purpose than them. Jaden Ivey, I'm not sure I've seen an athletic wing like him in college in a long, long time. I mean, that dude, that dude is like... Ja Morant explosive. He's not quite as vertical as Ja, but like when he punches the gas, it's like, whoa. So I Purdue, then I'd say Arizona. Really impressed with them. Ben Matherin, total stud on the wing. They're the Coloco inside is a great rim protector. Tubelis is a versatile four man. Kirk Creases, little bit boomer bust, but he's got some he's he's got some guts. They're good. They got some experienced transfers as well coming off the bench. Like that seems legit. I gotta throw Kansas in there. I've seen them four or five times in person at Allen Fieldhouse. Listen, Ochai Abaji's probably the national player of the year right now. They they're you know they they have some weaknesses, uh, but man, between B- Christian Brown and, and Ochai Abaji, that's a pretty good wing combination. That seems legit. Villanova, I'd put I'd put in there. W- we know about them. Colin Gillespie's a warrior. Justin Moore, incredible player. Hard team to play against. The way they slow it down, posting multiple players, uh, they're really good. And then that fifth spot, I had a hard time with. I think, and maybe it's just because they were playing against Arizona and the atmosphere in the game that I had was so amazing. But I'd put Illinois at the fifth spot. I think they they're Kofi Coburn's a unique load in the interior, but I think Trent Frazier's a freaking stud, and Alfonso Plummer is as good of a shooter as I've seen in person this year. So those would be the five best teams I've seen in person this year: Purdue, Arizona, Kansas, Villanova, and Illinois. I mean, those are to me those are five teams that I could see. Maybe not Illinois, but I, for sure, Nova, Kansas, Arizona, Purdue. Those are all final Final Four caliber teams. God, it's exciting that I've seen teams that good. Sometimes I, you know, it's a lot of roast beef state, but I've seen some good teams this year, man. Uh. T Chap six twenty three. I guess we'll just go with that. Uh, tweet Chapman says, uh, "Which schools did you think were the biggest rivals for Lincoln Southeast, Kansas, and Creighton? Did you feel more strongly than teammates or coaches about a specific opponent? Has this changed over time? And conference changes for you? So interesting question. So for for Southeast, um, first of all, it's weird. Like when you, I think back to to." high school and it's like all the city games felt big like anytime we played northeast or whoever like they they felt big but for me there were two teams that that f- felt like there's maybe a little bit more a little more juice in the in pumping through you when you're playing them one was Lincoln East 
And I think a lot of it was, and it's cool, like, I, like I've got, I now know a lot of the dudes that I played against there. Like, there was kind of just beef between the two, like, Southeast and East. That they didn't like us. We didn't like them. Period. Like, sometimes you just, you, just, uh, you don't like me, I don't like you. Let's just own it and let's, let's tip the ball up and play. But the, the team that I would probably choose would be Lincoln High for basketball. I guess I'm viewing this through a basketball lens. Football, I don't even, I'm not even sure. Like, I don't, th- I, did, I never viewed anybody as a rival in football. Other, the, the rival was probably like Prep or Millard North or something. I don't know. I, for hoops, it was probably Lincoln High, though. They, they were good. We were good. I had my own little budding rivalry with their point guard, Tyron Camby, who was, I mean, there was love there, too, man. I love that dude. We got to play together in the summers and all that, but. So for me, there was a personal, you know, it was always a personal fun thing to go at Tyron. And I mean, they they were good. We were good. Two best teams in the city, hooking it up. At Kansas, the big one was Missouri. Of course, Kansas State was a big end too, but Missouri was a war, man. Like that game, that game felt different. And you could just feel, it just felt different. I remember being on the bench at Missouri my freshman year and, and we'd get pelted by coins. Like you'd be sitting on the bench in the student section with like we'd be getting hit with quarters. Like it was nuts in there. And then at Creighton, there were there were two Nebraska, obviously. I mean, huge rivalry. And then the other one was Southern Illinois. That's the thing that people talk about, like Southern Illinois, that was the game. Like, everyone now is like, Wichita State's the big rival. And Wichita State slowly moved into that spot. Maybe the last few years, the Jays were in the Valley. But for the majority of my time, Southern Illinois was the rival. Southern Illinois was the rival. And now, I mean, Creighton still has Nebraska as a rival. And all, but that game's, I don't know, that game's kind of lost some of its zest the past few, year, past few years. I mean, that was a huge, it's, it still is their biggest rival. Creighton's biggest rival. But in terms of a Big East rival, man, I don't even I don't even know who I would say. I don't think I could muster up a I don't know who I would say. I mean, and listen, that's one of the consequences of changing conferences. You lose some of those rivalries. I mean, Nebraska football's had to deal with that, right? Like, but I do think with Nebraska football, each passing year, there's more history being developed and bad blood and games to reference and all that stuff that helps. I mean, certainly Iowa, Border, that that rivalry's a real one. I think that if you're Nebraska football, you'd say that's the rival right now. But for Creighton basketball, man, I don't know. I don't even know who their biggest rival is. The Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors, and I want to talk to you guys about energy efficiency. And if you go into Pella's website right now, you look at it, and how about this? One, two, three, four, five different types of windows or doors by Pella won the Energy Star 2020 Most Energy Efficient Award. That's big-time stuff right there. And they achieved that in a couple of waves. They got insulated glass, which slows the heat transfer, keeping your home at a more comfortable temperature. They got types of low-E glass, which is a glass coating that has been optimized for your climate. They got triple pane glass, which you can upgrade to for increased insulating airspace. And within all of that, one of the keys is proper installation, which is key for window and doors to perform at their best. And you know the Pella experts are excellent at that. Bottom line, energy efficiency matters in making your home more comfortable. And Pella windows and doors are at the top of the line when it comes to energy efficiency. Check them out online, PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. Yodi on uh, on Twitter asks, Nick, when did you start knowing you could play big-time college basketball? Okay. So, I mean, for me to answer this question, there's no way to sound like this is going to sound like really arrogant. This whole answer is going to sound really cocky and arrogant and egotistical and all this stuff. I mean, I don't mean for it to be like that, but Yodi asked the question. I mean, for me, like, I don't know. I mean, I think I always knew I was good. Like, I scored my parents. I scored 35 points in the first game I ever played. Like, I think when I was like six. So, I've always been, for as long as I can remember, I feel like I remember being good at basketball. But to me, I, I've always looked at it like, you know, there there are checkpoints you got to hit in terms of figuring, like, b- 
filling up your confidence bucket of like what you can, how good you can be in basketball. Like to me, it's like you got to start with being the best player on your team. Okay, now you're the best player on your team. Okay, are you the best player in your age, like in your grade? Okay, are you the best player in the city and then the state? Like you know, you just you build it out, and each each layer that you build out, you build more confidence. And for me, I felt like by the time I got to middle school, like I had seen everyone in Lincoln. And again, this sounds incredibly cocky, but like I felt like I was the best player in Lincoln in my age. Like I didn't feel like there was anybody better than me. And then the next step is like, okay, outside your city. And then outside your state. And to me, there were two moments that kind of stood out. Like I vividly remember this. So I remember going, I went to Hastings basketball camp in eighth, seventh and eighth grade. Eighth grade, I think, where you you go there, you stay at the dorms on the on campus, and you're there for like four or five nights or something like that. And at this camp, one of the things they do is every night they'd make five on new five on five teams for each night, and you'd play in a tournament. So each night you had a different team. It'd be you and four or five other new players on your team and then the next night it'd be you and four or five different players on your team and there were players there was people from Omaha from Lincoln from all over the state of Nebraska and I remember my team won the tournament every night I never lost a game and then with those games every night they had these camp employees there and this was kind of cool they were there keeping stats points Rebounds, assists, steals. So every night, they'd be keeping stats of every game, everybody's stat. And then at the end of the camp, when they had a little, they they had their their little goodbye award ceremony for the end of the camp. They tallied all those stats up. And then would hand out the scoring champ, the rebounding champ, the assists champ, the steals champion. I won every category. I was a scoring champ, the rebounding champ, the assist champ, the steals champ. And then they also had contests, right? Like throughout the day, there was contest day. They had a one-on-one tournament, a three-point shooting competition, a free throw shooting competition. They had a knockout tournament. And I won all of those. And then they had a camp MVP award voted on by the counselors, and I won that. And I will never forget, like, it was almost embarrassing and uncomfortable. It was at the final award ceremony in front of the entire camp and all of the campers' parents, and they handed every award I just said, they handed that out one by one. They're like, all right, and your your knockout champ, Nick Baugh, and your one-on-one champ, Nick Baugh, your daily scoring champion, Nick Ball, your daily rebounding champion, Nick, I won every single award. But I can remember getting in my mom's car to drive back from Hastings to Lincoln. And I remember thinking like, man, I might be able to take this back. Like, like I got in the car and I thought you would have thought I was like, I mean, I, my confidence was on a trillion. But I remember thinking, like, man, maybe I can take this basketball thing, like, take this somewhere, like, further than I even realize. And then the first time you play in, like, a big AAU tournament. The first big AAU tournament I played in was actually at Lawrence, Kansas. It was at various sites, but one of them was Allen Fieldhouse. And we played against Darren Williams. And Darren Williams was a year older than me. might have been two years older than me. And I went toe-to-toe with him and held my own. My team beat Darren Williams' team, like, and it was this was like early stages of the internet, but there was like a Bob Gibbons, I think it was Bob Gibbons Blue Ribbon report or something like that, where basically it was like a rivals guy before rivals, right? And he wrote up uh, the top performers, and he had a little blurb on me, and and thought I could play, projected me as a mid to high major recruit. And that was another moment. I'm like, okay, I just went at Darren Williams, who's going to Illinois, beat him. Look at this Bob Gibbons report. I don't know who Bob Gibbons is, but he thinks I'm nice, so he knows what he's talking about. Like, so I to me it was the 
Hastings basketball camp. And then the first time I played in a real, like, against other top players from the, from other states. So it goes back to my point of, like, okay, be the best player on your team, then in your grade, then in your city, then outside of your city, and be in your state. And, like, you just – all those checkpoints add confidence to you. So there you go. In a related story, I'm the biggest arrogant, egotistical piece of crap. But hopefully you guys found that interesting. I don't know. Uh, Bluegrass Husker tweets at me and says, Bluegrass has asked this question like for every mailbag. And I feel like I got to answer it. Like, says, Nick, how difficult is it to remain unbiased when calling a game, i.e. Nebraska, Creighton, or Kansas? You know, I feel like I get that from some people. Even, even I had someone tweet at me. God, I should pull it up. I had someone tweet at me during the Xavier game. It was after the Xavier game. And the, the I'm going to pull it up here. I hope you guys are, are okay with it. I got to pull this up because this tweeted at me. It was like, I don't know how you kept it together for that one. As Creighton was falling apart. I can't find it. But someone was tweeting at me like, I don't know how you kept it together as Creighton was, was falling apart in the second half. And I, I mean, to me, the challenging thing isn't necessarily being unbiased. The challenging thing for me, if I'm calling a game, a nationally televised game on Fox, is altering the lens of how how I'm watching a game. And what I mean by that is, if I'm at home watching a Creighton game and not calling it, like so I'm maybe on the road getting ready to do a different game and I'm watching Creighton, I'm watching everything through the lens of Creighton. Meaning, I'm only viewing what Creighton is doing right or doing wrong. If they're on defense, I'm more watching what they're doing right or wrong with their rotations, handling screens, all that stuff, more so than what the offense is maybe doing right. The opposition is doing right. So to me, the challenge isn't as much a bias as it is viewing the game more balanced through both sides. And that is that is a challenge even for non-Creighton games where you, you have to make sure you're, you're seeing things equally, right? Like even doing Iowa and Purdue, like you got you to gotta be able to see what is happening and, and, okay, was that more about Purdue and what they're doing well or did Iowa maybe mess this up or vice versa? So I don't I don't it's it's not that difficult to remain unbiased but I think the lens at which you view these games th- that's what the challenge is like you got to change the filter of like okay now we're, we get, we can't watch it just through a Kansas lens I can't only watch what Dewan Harris and and Remy Martin are doing right or wrong I got to watch the whole picture so that it's more that than it is being unbiased Vic, this one's from around from a little while ago. He says, Nick, since you discovered the movie It's a Wonderful Life, could you discover the Husker women's basketball team? Vic, I'll have you know it. I actually called Nebraska's Drake game back in December on BTN. How about that? There was a little emergency right before the game started. BTN called me. They knew I was in Lincoln. They said, hey, can you? They called me at like 10 o'clock and said, can you be at Pinnacle Bank Arena for a noon tip? Creighton, or, uh, Creighton. Drake and Nebraska. I was like, sure. And I got to tell you, I couldn't have been more impressed watching Amy Williams' team. Like, could not have been more impressed. They were so much fun to watch play. So, Vic, I'm, I have discovered them, and I'm a fan. I have discovered them, and I'm a fan. Last question here from Dominic. It says, Nick, what's your, number, what's your personal number one sports moment? Either game you played in, game you watched, something a player or coach did or said. What was special about it? Huge fan of the podcast. Love what you do and look forward to hearing you call more games this season. Okay. Um, my my number one sports moment in terms of a personal game probably would be state championship football game my sophomore year, Lincoln Southeast, Creighton Prep, double overtime, scored the game-winning touchdown, second OT. Uh, or the Missouri Valley Conference title game um, my junior year where we beat Southern Illinois and, and to win the Valley Tournament title. And there's just nothing like winning a conference tournament and knowing that you're in the NCAA tournament. Like, just when we got back to the locker room, 
you know, we cut down the nets, we got the hats and the shirt, and we got back to the locker room and we were all in there, you know, hooting and hollering, and we know we're in the NCAA tournament, especially because we had to win. To, we were not going to get an at-large bid. We had to win it to get in, and when you do that, man, I still I get chills thinking about it. My favorite uh, – one of my favorite memories, one of my one of my favorite coaching, you know, because Dominic asked, like, was it uh, something a player or coach said, was what my high school football coach said to me my, as I was a sophomore. We were in the state playoffs playing Papillion. I think it was in the quarterfinals. And it was snowing. It was cold. The conditions were tough. And I fumbled two snaps in the first half. We might have lost both of them, too. Lost both fumbles. But I fumbled, too, because it was snowy. It was wet. I mean, it was just one of those sluggy games. And I remember getting back to the locker room, and it's halftime. And, you know, I'd played like shit. I fumbled two snaps. I'm, I'm a sophomore. I mean, I'm like 16 years old, right? And in walks Chuck Mazursky, my high school football coach, who's, like a, who's a legend, was a super intimidating figure, and... Coach Mazursky walks in, and in my in my moment of weak mindedness, what I what I wanted and hoped was for Coach Mazursky to you know come over to me, put his arm around me, pat me on the back, and tell me everything's going to be okay. You know, just hang, you're fine, everything's going to be okay. And so he comes in, and he come he comes up to me, and I'm like, okay, here we go. Hopefully, come on, please, please, just pat me on the back, Coach Mazursky, just please pat me on the back. He, he gets one inch from my nose. Like, we, we are face-to-face. I can still see his eyes, like, piercing into my eyes. He, he looks at me, says, if you fumble one more fucking snap, you'll never play another down at quarterback at Lincoln Southeast. You understand me? I said, yes, sir. And he walked away, and I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I, I better – like, my sole thought the rest of the game was the level of focus on making sure that I got that snap was like I could still just – like, I was locked in on getting that snap. And you know what? I didn't fumble another snap, and that was all I needed to do to get the ball to Barrett Rood, and then Barrett Rood was able to run and, and seal the game for us. But that <laughs> – I just love – that moment is stuck with me. You know, sometimes sometimes there's a time you do need a, a pat on the back, and there's sometimes you need to be told to just like, hey, man, sack up. Get tough. You know, and that, and that was one of those moments. One of my favorite stories there. My, and then my favorite, uh, favorite sports moment that I watched, I, I mean, honestly, Tigers, Tiger Woods winning the Masters in 2019. That's up there. Cavs Warriors, Game 7, 2016. The LeBron block and then the Kyrie shot. And then, I mean, shoot, how much time you got for all the Nebraska football memories? Stunts, Crouch, 2001, Oklahoma. 94, Orange Bowl, Nebraska beating Miami 24-17. Watching my dad take a shot of like an aged whiskey that I've never seen my dad drink any hard alcohol. It's the only time I've seen him do that. 97 Missouri, the flea, the the flea kicker, Davison, catch. Shoot, plenty of those watching, man. Good questions. All right, that'll do it, man. Appreciate the mailbag's always fun. It's always a blast. Appreciate you guys. You can email me anytime, nick at nickbot.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Give it a five-star rating and a review. We'll catch you next time on the Nick Bot Podcast. A Media Production.